0: You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast, teaching your registrar about STI management. What's new? Presented by Dr Sally Sweeney. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families.
1: Welcome everyone. Sally will be talking very much around up-to-date clinical guidance, best practice and how we can manage these patients most effectively. And I would very much like now to introduce Dr. Sally Sweeney. So Sally's a GP who has particular expertise in sexual and reproductive medicine. She's 16 years clinical experience and she does a lot of women's health in that capacity but she does have also a role as a clinician at Family Planning New South Wales. And also as a research doctor with the Family Planning New South Wales Research Centre. So lots of clinical research, academic and practical expertise. She is also a supervisor of extended skills registrars. So she comes with all those facets.
2: Thank you, Simon. So just a bit of a quick run through of what we'll be covering. It's really a bit of a revision for us about what we should be teaching our registrars about taking a sexual history. I really want to go through what are some of the most up-to-date Australian STI guidelines and local resources, because those are the sorts of things that are going to be really handy for us to be using when teaching registrars in those teaching sessions, really highlighting what screening we should be offering to specific populations. Then we'll go through management of common STIs and syndromes that our registrars will be encountering in general practice. As we go through, I'll be sort of running through some cases, sort of those classic teaching cases that we, that we might encounter. So firstly, taking a sexual history. A lot of registrars, particularly when they're in term one, coming to their first general practice term, particularly if they've not done a lot of community-based practice or they have not done an, an ONG term, it might be the first time that they're actually taking a sexual history when they're working in their first GP term. So it's really good as a supervisor, I guess, to spend a bit of time going through what a sexual history should look like and spending some time working with your registrar to make sure that they're really taking an adequate sexual history because it is a bit of a learned skill and it can be quite uncomfortable sometimes for newcomers to get their head around what sort of language to be using. There's often cultural influences and sometimes male registrar might find it difficult asking female patient-sensitive questions for the first time that they might not be used to asking. So there's a lot of factors going on that can make it a bit of a tricky consult to learn. So one thing that can be good to do is spend a bit of time role-playing, taking a sexual history, just so that the registrar can get used to using the words and saying the words so that they roll off the tongue and it doesn't sound so forced. So it's really important to ensure that your registrars are normalising the conversation and seeking permission to proceed. So I often find myself in consultation saying things like, look, I ask all of my patients these questions when we're doing cervical screening. Is it okay if I ask you those questions? Or saying an introductory statement like, we offer routine STI screening to everyone under 30. Is it okay if I ask you some specific questions about your sexual history? Or saying something like, look, I need to ask some personal questions. Is that okay? And really framing it that say look I ask these questions of everybody so sometimes if you're asking a male if they've ever had sex with another male that can be confronting so really normalizing it and framing it as something that you routinely are asking all of your patients so that the patient isn't sort of feeling like they're being singled out for this line of questioning so introducing it as routine questioning is really important really important to never make assumptions about sexual identity orientation or practices and even to this day it's so easy to get caught out sometimes you'll have a long-term patient you might not see often and it's always been for unrelated stuff and then all of a sudden you'll come up with a contraception issue or an STI screening and you'll realise that they're in the same sex relationship and it's never come up or you've wrongly assumed that they're heterosexual. So it can be awkward for both you and the patient. So never making assumptions about sexual identity orientational practices and always asking those open questions so that we're not making assumptions. And I think when we're taking our history, it's important to avoid value terms such as, are you married? So I've seen plenty of registrars sit down and approach the sexual history. And when they're asking whether someone has a sexual partner, they'll say, are you married? And then the person says, yes. And that's the end of the conversation. And they don't ask any more questions. And yes, they've identified that the person's married, but not that they've got five other sexual partners. So instead, consider framing it in ways um, such as, you know, do you have a current sexual partner? Do you have any other sexual partners? And often, if it's with one of your long term patients, that there might have a bit of a laugh and say oh I wish or no no I haven't got time for that so again sort of that normalizing it but making sure that we really are not using value or judgment terms and also making sure that we're using the correct terms for anatomy so some registrars when they're trying to elicit if there's any symptoms might be a bit vague and a bit nervous about using anatomical terms themselves so they might say things like oh have you got any symptoms down there or something like that and it's like geez I don't know what they mean by down there so how's the patient going to know or there could be potentially confusion because the patient's down there, doesn't correlate with the GP's idea of what down there is. So really being quite specific with our anatomical terms when we're taking that history. So some questions like, do you have a regular partner? If the answer is yes, then are there any other partners for you? Because then it sort of makes it okay for the patient to say yes, because they might be feeling a bit nervous about revealing that they've got several sexual partners, but again, normalising it. And sometimes, particularly working in the youth sexual health clinic where they're coming for STI screening, and you can see when you're asking in the last six months how many partners have there been, sometimes it's like when taking the drug and alcohol history to sort of try and establish some rapport, you might overestimate. You might say, oh, has there been 10 partners? and they'll say oh no not that many and it just makes them feel more comfortable to give that appropriate history so questions like are there any other partners for you and then quantifying in the last six months how many partners have there been for you because that's important when we're thinking about our contact tracing and then how recent is the most recent sexual contact particularly important for window periods which I'll talk a bit more about as we move along Really important one is to ask a female if they've ever had a female partner and a male if they've ever had a male partner. Because again, that might not be something that they will openly offer up. But if we frame it and say, look, I ask everybody this question and you really normalise it, you're more likely to get an answer that's more honest. A question that can be really tricky to learn is asking what type of sex someone is having. Because that can really inform what testing we should be doing and what risks are present. And again, it's really important to say, look, I ask everybody this question, but I need to work out what sort of tests to do for you. So I need to know what type of sex you've had. So, for example, asking females if they're just having vaginal intercourse or if they're having anal intercourse as well is important because we know rectal chlamydia has a completely different treatment and follow-up to vaginal chlamydia. And particularly men who have sex with men, it's really important to establish what type of sex they're having, whether it's receptive anal intercourse, penetrative anal intercourse, because again, that will change risk stratification and things like that. So finding out what type of sexual behaviours are going on is really important. And also asking if they've ever had an STI is important as well. Asking about condom use is important because, again, that's part of your risk stratification. If you're dealing with men who have sex with men, MSM refers to men who have sex with men. PrEP. So PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So that's where men who have sex with men can take some antiviral HIV medicines prophylactically before sex. And there's two ways to take it. You can take it as a regular daily medication or a newer way to take it is on demand, where you take it for a couple of hours before intended sexual activity and then for a couple of days after so important to ascertain if you've got a man who has sex with men whether he's using PrEP contraceptive history for your female patients you want to establish if there's pregnancy risk and then that can lead to some opportunistic contraceptive consultations there really really super important to establish if there are any current symptoms because then that should trigger an examination And then that might trigger some specific tests in addition to your background screening tests that we will be performing as part of an STR consultation. Specific populations have specific screening needs. So for example, IV drug users, people who have been in prison, sex workers, pregnant women, ATSI people, refugees, all have more specific screening recommendations that we can go through. Vaccination status is an important one as well. So as part of your STI screening, you can be assessing immunity to hepatitis B for heterosexual patients. Hepatitis A is recommended for men who have sex with men. So that's an important one to think about. HPV vaccination for both men and women is also quite important. And just to flag in the research setting, there is some emerging research that shows that the Bexero vaccination actually does have some protection for gonorrhea, but obviously we're not recommending Bexero, but that's more of just an interesting little research snippet that's been shown. If you don't remember anything from this talk other than the next point, make sure that we're all making our registrars aware that they must always be examining a symptomatic patient. So if a woman reveals that she's got some post bleeding or that she's got some altered abnormal vaginal discharge, she's not someone we're going to send to the bathroom to do a self-collected vaginal swab. She's somebody who should be scoring an examination. So always, always, always when teaching your registrars, they should gain a really good understanding that symptomatic patients should always score an examination. And then the follow-on from that is that It's something worth considering to offer a chaperone during a genital examination. And the RACGP actually have a specific guidance document on offering a chaperone.
1: I'm imagining a cohort of registrars, particularly as you referred to those from different cultural backgrounds, really challenged by this, particularly when there's a gender imbalance. Is there anything else you'd add or would proffer around somebody who's come from a background where that is a really sensitive issue perhaps Mm. and that just really struggle with it
2: yeah I think that's where I mean I know we have our registrars that come through family planning that sometimes really do struggle and and that's where really the value of teaching tools such as sitting in so having maybe them sit in with you so they can just watch how you are saying it and the words that you're using to see that it is okay and how to normalize it and then lots of role play So often for these registrars who struggle, it's really just saying the words that they've got a discomfort with just saying the words. So role playing, lots and lots of repetition is really important. And so you probably progress from doing some role plays and having them sit in with you. And then maybe as the supervisor, you're sitting in with them just to make sure that they are sort of appropriately delivering that care. That segues nicely into that there are lots of resources available to you as supervisors to be setting your registrars up with a toolkit for approaching sexual health management in general practice. So the first one I've got there is the very, very helpful Australian STI management guidelines. Now, these were put together back in about 2017, and I think they were launched in around 2017, 2018 now, but they were designed specifically for primary care. They're probably the most user-friendly guidelines that I've ever really used. I would use them daily in my practice and they're updated at least every year or two with current changes. So they're very helpful guidelines and they'll cover individual STIs, population screening requirements, really, really user-friendly. That is something that you'd be wanting to set your registrar up with. There's also some supervisors might be familiar with the old blue family planning handbook that underwent a bit of a revision back in 2019. And in 2020, that was relaunched as an online handbook. So that's a really good resource that also covers the breadth of scope of practice in reproductive and sexual health. There's recently released therapeutic guidelines chapter on sexual and reproductive health, which is also a really, really good resource that I'd encourage in your teaching practices to make sure that your registrars all know how to log into that. It covers everything from STI management through to contraception, through to syndromes, through to medical termination of pregnancy. So that is a a really useful chapter to be making sure your registrars are familiar with and using as well. So for those of you working in New South Wales, the New South Wales STI Programs Unit or STIPU is a fabulous source of information and they're involved in writing a lot of the guidelines. And so there's a specific suite of resources that they have developed relevant to general practice. There's also Asham. So some of you may have heard of ASHM, they're the Australasian Society for HIV, Viral Hepatitis and Sexual Health Medicine. They've got a really good website that has learning modules. You can join ASHM for a yearly membership. They put on an annual conference, but they've got lots of online learning modules and they're a really good resource as well. STIPU have put out a specific testing guideline, which was updated in 2019 for screening men who have sex with men. It's a two page PDF that's really important for your registrars to have in their toolkit as well. Really good contact tracing tool, Let them letthemknow.org.au. That's a good one to use with your heterosexual patients who have an STI and need to contact trace. It's an anonymous way where you can just put in an email address or a mobile phone number and it will send an anonymous message to someone saying, hey, you've had a chlamydia contact and you need to go and seek testing and treatment. And then drama down under, that's one for men who have sex with men to be able to do their anonymous contact tracing. So we're just going to change pace a bit and go through the classic routine asymptomatic STI screen that might be coming in to see a registrar. So we've got young Abby, she's 23, and she presents for her oral contraceptive script. Probably all seen this several times a day. She's otherwise on no medications. She's got relevant medical history. So what questions would you be expecting your registrar to be asking of Abby? And what tests would you be thinking that we should really be offering to Abby? Some questions there around whether she's using condoms, so that's going to be important to assess sort of STI risk, use of missed pills, condom use. Why is she on the COCP? Because so you can think about offering her a lark and we want to be assessing her compliance with the pill. Urine test for chlamydia. Has she ever had an STI? Do you have a regular partner?
1: I think this just makes a really good point that's a broader point for registrars, and that's that notion of the simple script. And I'm hoping that you'll... Do teach this to registrars. Often we see it as something to catch up, and we can just take every one or two questions, and then here's the script. But as Sally's illustrating here, there's many, many questions, important questions that we should be asking Abby, and and we need to ask our patients who are coming for a statin or for an antihypertensive or for a, a repeat of their SSRI. So I think it it illustrates a broader point around there's no such thing as a simple script. Mm.
2: It's a real opportunistic consultation where there's a lot to cover. So. Obviously, the lines of questioning, we're asking about whether there's a current partner, numbers of partners, sexual practices, condom use, contraceptive compliance, any symptoms. That's a really important one. Does she have some post bleeding? Is there any intermenstrual bleeding? Does she have deep dyspareunia? So in terms of what tests we're going to do, what we've sort of moved to for many years now is certainly for men, it's first pass urine. And as long as they've not passed urine in the last 20 minutes, you can send them to the bathroom. So it used to be many, many years ago that it had to be a first morning urine for the male STI screens, but really a first pass urine can be done if it's been 20 minutes since they've last passed urine. But really for women, such as this case, we'd be looking to send them to the bathroom to do a self-collected low vaginal swab as our preferred third option for screening for chlamydia because it is actually a little bit more sensitive than a first pass urine. If she did on your questioning reveal that she was having anal sex, you could consider getting her to do a self-collected rectal swab. If you're examining her, so say she revealed that she had some post bleeding or some abnormal discharge and you're popping a speculum in, then you could collect the swabs from the endocervix to screen for chlamydia on that swab. And we should be offering chlamydia screening. Most guidelines would recommend from 15 to 29 or if they're sexually active younger than 15 and then from the point of being sexually active at least annually in that age group or more often if there's frequent change in sexual partner keeping in mind chlamydia does have a window period of seven days so really really important to be taking that history of when their most recent new sexual contact was because if they said oh look i had unprotected sex with a new partner two days ago you'd want to be repeating a test for them at least another week down the track because you're still in that seven day window period for chlamydia For a routine asymptomatic STI screen, we would be asking them if they had vaccination for Hep B and checking Hep B immunity status on some serology if we were going to be doing some bloodborne virus screening and offering them immunisation if they were not immune to Hep B. Syphilis. So syphilis is an interesting one. We've got, and I'm going to talk a bit more about syphilis later, but we've got a big problem emerging with syphilis. Lots of outbreaks occurring in Australia. We're seeing emergence again of congenital syphilis. So really, really our threshold to testing for syphilis is becoming lower and lower. And it is something that we would offer as part of our routine asymptomatic STI screen. But there are some groups who should be screened at least annually for syphilis, including men who have sex with men, ATSI populations, IV drug users should be scoring a test at least annually. HIV serology to really offering to anyone who is requesting testing and remembering for our bloodborne viruses that most modern tests will be picking them up in a window period of six weeks but the gold standard for window periods for our hepatitis, HIV and syphilis serology is really up to three months so talking about those window periods and retesting if needed to satisfy those window periods. All of the guidelines talk about gonorrhea screening according to risk assessment. But in reality, if you're ordering a chlamydia PCR, you're automatically getting a gonorrhea PCR because they're done on the same assay. And so even if you don't request it, if there's a positive gonorrhea, it will be reported because they're just done on the same assay at the lab. Do we screen for trich? So trichomoniasis. Again, it tends to occur more in atsi populations, rural, regional, and remote areas. So you can test if you're seeing someone from those areas or in those populations. Again, big take-home point is that we do not do routine asymptomatic screening for Mycoplasma genitalium. So you just don't do it. And I will talk a bit more about that. But no routine screening for Mycoplasma. So a bit on chlamydia. So it is our most commonly reported communicable disease in Australia, often asymptomatic. So most chlamydia is asymptomatic and we won't know they're there unless we test for them. But it is often implicated in our syndromes. So urethritis, cervicitis, pelvic inflammatory disease, chlamydia is a player often that we see in those syndromes if you do see a positive chlamydia you do recommend contact tracing all partners from the previous six months so that's where you can be offering the patient those let them know websites to assist with that and there is remembering a window period of seven days and we do recommend that for everyone with a positive chlamydia that they have a re-screen after three months and that's not so much a test of cure but there's a high rate of reinfection in positive chlamydias. so the current guidance is to be re-screening after three months and I often just tell the patients to put a rem- in their phone for three months to come back on in for a test. The two situations where you would be doing a test of cure in a month's time for chlamydia would be in pregnant women and where you've got a rectal infection. The management of chlamydia there is taken straight from the Australian STI guidelines and just to say on that that there was a bit of a shift now um, about a year or two ago so for many many years first line for uncomplicated chlamydia was the stat dose of one gram of azithromycin but what we're seeing is that the use of azithromycin is really pushing resistance in mycoplasma so the guidance changed to re-emphasize and reintroduce doxycycline as a first-line option for uncomplicated chlamydia so really offering our patients a week of BD-doxy or the stat dose of azithromycin. And yeah, the reason for that is really that the azithromycin is sort of contributing to the resistance situation with mycoplasma. A lot of patients, they're not going to comply with the week of doxy. So a lot of patients, when offered the choice, will still choose the stat dose of, of azithromycin. But it really is using that joint decision-making model and, and offering them both options. For anorectal infection, you need to do the seven days of BD-doxy. But if they're symptomatic, then they should have 21 days. PDPT which is patient delivered partner therapy and I have included a link there to an article that does talk a bit about PDPT because the tricky thing is that the legislation around this differs by state so depending on what state you're practicing in you need to be familiar with what your particular state's legislation is but in a nutshell it's really where you are offering a prescription for your patient's partner to take to the chemist to get their azithromycin, and it's really about using it in situations where you think your patient is going to be at risk of reinfection because there's a current ongoing sexual partner who may not seek treatment and testing. So certainly in New South Wales there are some rules around doing it, but you can do it, and I do do it in my clinical practice. There are some rules around having to keep a record of the person that you've issued that prescription for, and it does need to be separate from your patient's medical record. So we have a folder that lives in a locked cupboard at one of my workplaces where we do that. And you have to do your best to ascertain whether that person has any asking. Do you know if your partner's got any allergies, any medical history? You have to get two forms of contact for them. So that there are some rules around doing it, but it's certainly something to consider. And it does assist in managing your own patient if there is risk that that cycle of reinfection won't be broken. Moving on to gonorrhea. So it does tend to be more common in men who have sex with men, younger heterosexual ATSI populations, but we are seeing, that said, a lot of it in our heterosexual populations, We're seeing more and more gonorrhea cases over the years in heterosexual populations. And we are seeing, unfortunately, increasing antimicrobial resistance to our first-line treatments. So gonorrhea, you need to contact TRACE for two months prior, and you must do a test of cure at least two weeks after treatment. And really, really important one of the the biggest take-home points to this is because we do have such emerging resistance is that you should take a sample for microscopy culture and sensitivity prior to your antibiotic treatment so if it's a male and it's been on a urine sample you would get a urine sent for mcns prior to treating him Same with a female, if you've detected it on a vaginal swab, you would then take, when you've got the result, call them back for treatment. If there wasn't an MCNS done at the time, you would get a repeat swab for MCNS prior to giving them that treatment, just to really help in that identification. Certainly the current first-line uncomplicated treatment advice is the 500 milligrams of Keftriaxone plus a gram of STAT azithromycin. But there is lots of emerging resistance to Keftriaxone in certain areas so it's something to really be on the lookout for. I do want to specifically highlight the very unique screening requirements for men who have sex with men. So there is this really, really good two-page guideline that's been put out by Stipu that really outlines quite nicely what we should be offering these patients, usually every three months. But at least annually for some of the tests, but usually three-monthly testing is what we're setting up our men who have sex with men with. And so for these men, they should be getting syphilis serology, so this group's one of our groups that should get it at least annually, but obviously if there's more change in sexual partner than three monthly. HIV, serology, as I said before, hepatitis A, testing if they're not vaccinated and vaccinating if they're antibody negative, same for hepatitis B. And in a man who might be living with HIV, taking PrEP or with history of IV drug use, we'd want to be screening for hepatitis C at least annually as well. And then the swabs. So for these guys, they need to get a throat swab for chlamydia and gonorrhea, an anorectal swab for chlamydia and gonorrhea, and a first pass urine. So you've always got to remember it's two swabs and a urine and some bloods for these guys. And they'll collect the anorectal swab themselves unless they're symptomatic, in which case you should examine them if there's some signs of proctitis first pass urine. And so if they haven't weed in 20 minutes, then they're fine to do a first pass urine and a throat swab. So that's a really nice little tool and guidance that outlines what should be done. The most recent update in 2019, it used to be that we would only recommend an anal swab if they had reported anal sex, like receptive anal sex, but found that combination of GPs not being great at taking that history and men not being great at giving up that history that now, rather than trying to ascertain what's gone where the blanket guidance was that everybody just gets one. And there has been cases where men have not had receptive anal sex and still ended up with chlamydia. So there's lots of theories about oral acquisition of chlamydia, and then it's living in the GI tract. So basically take home message, everybody gets an erectal swab now as part of that screening. Also in men who have sex with men, One thing to think about, which is certainly well within GP scope of practice, and it would be nice to see a lot more GPs offering it. So if you've got a really motivated, interested registrar, maybe supporting them to even upskill in prep prescribing so pre-exposure prophylaxis and ASHAM have some really lovely online modules and guidelines and algorithms that they've put together where GPs can upskill in prep prescribing so if that's something that you might have an interested and motivated registrar you can support them to upskill in that area.
1: How often should you screen for HIV, hep and hep C in a patient who comes to request for the test?
2: good question so I mean hep C again depends on risk so for our men who have sex with men if they're HIV positive if they're on PrEP or if there's IV drug use it would be at least yearly for hep C HIV and syphilis again depends on window periods and exposure so if there's been new unprotected sex then that might be something you might screen for every three months it's really a bit of a, a risk assessment but for men who have sex with men at least 12 months but that's where those Australian STI guidelines are really nice because when you look in the populations like there's a drop down box at the top that'll say populations, it'll tell you the guidance for testing intervals there. So that's quite nice. So moving on. So we've got a case now. This case is something that does crop up quite a lot in primary care and management can vary a bit. And there has been some recent guidance change. So just really important to be supporting our registrars with currency of practice. So we've got Andrea, who's 24, and she gives a three to four week history of pelvic pain. It's been more severe in the past week. She's got a little bit of dysuria going on. She's tired. She's nauseous. She's got some offensive vaginal discharge. She's got a Marina in that's been there for a year and a half, which she's very happy has given her amenorrhea. And she's been with a current sexual partner for five months. And she had a last STI screen eight months ago. She's not using condoms. So differentials. PID, she had some urine symptoms, so potentially UTI. This woman is pregnant until proven negative. Even though she's got an IUD, there is still a very small risk of pregnancy. And if she does have a pregnancy with an IUD, there's a a higher likelihood that it, it could be an ectopic. So we must exclude in particular ectopic pregnancy in this case. Ovarian pathology, appendicitis and endometriosis are some other important less acute certainly endometriosis much less acute differentials to consider there bv certainly that will give her the discharge but bv would not really be a cause for dyspareunia and pelvic pain but that said bv alone would not explain this whole presentation i guess is the short answer so this woman, we would absolutely be examining. So again, really want to make sure that your registrars are knowing that they should be examining these symptomatic presentations. We'd want to be palpating her abdomen, making sure there's no signs of a surgical abdomen if we're worried about neck topic We'd be putting a speculum in, making sure we could see her IUD string, looking for signs of inflamed cervix and cervicitis. And we would need to be doing a, a bimanual pelvic examination, looking for cervical motion tenderness, adnex tenderness, uterine tenderness. So in this case, we saw some cervicitis. She had pelvic tenderness. She had a negative beta HCG. So next steps in this. So I think we would all make based on the fact that we've got a patient presenting with pelvic pain dyspareunia. She's tender on examination. We've excluded pregnancy. I think we could all safely form a diagnosis of PID so the things by guidelines that we would be having our registrars do next would be taking those endocervical swabs for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and mycoplasma. So this is a situation where you would be testing for mycoplasma. And again, I will talk more about mycoplasma shortly, but certainly in symptomatic presentations. So in our syndromes such as PID, we would be testing for mycoplasma. We'd want to do a high vaginal swab for MCNS. You could consider trichomonas if you were in a higher risk setting or demographic MSU if she's got some urinary symptoms you could consider a pelvic ultrasound if you were suspecting alternative diagnosis but remembering that ultrasound may be normal in PID and bloods you know a lot of people want to do full blood counts and CRP when there's a PID presentation but often they will be normal in mild PID it would be appropriate to commence empirical antibiotics as per current guidelines, and I'll show you what those are in a minute, and also offering her partner, if there is a a current ongoing partner, some empirical azithromycin treatment and advising abstinence until treatment was completed. At this stage, we would leave her IUD in. So most women with PID with an IUD in place can retain their IUD. The exception for that would be that if there was no improvement at 48 to 72 hours, then IUD removal would be in indicated. And we always must review these patients. So making sure your your registrars are aware of your patient's recall system, if you have one, to make sure that these patients are not lost to follow up, because we need to make sure that they are clinically improving with a good 48 to 72 hours of antibiotics on board.
1: Is your observation that this empirical treatment of a patient with acute PRD sometimes doesn't occur that there's this sense of i you know it looks like PID but I'll just get the testing and then get them back and then yep. treat them yeah yes
2: absolutely we see a lot of people coming through particularly our, our more specialized clinics where they've had a few visits to the GP they might not have been examined or it might be let's wait and see what the swab results say mm, yeah. um, and so PID is so important in 60% of cases there won't be a positive swab it'll be your STI screen will be negative because it does relate more to vaginal microbiota it is a clinical diagnosis and it's just so important to examine these patients and if you suspect PID, to get the treatment underway because the sequelae for PID includes ectopic pregnancy, chronic pelvic pain. So it's just so important that we don't delay if we suspect.
1: Yeah, so I think that is an extraordinarily important teaching point for registrars as well, which may not. And, I may not yeah. know that.
2: and when you see the teaching plan that's going to be available, there is a case to work through with your registrars there specifically on PID because it is a bit of a gap and we do see a lot of variability and it's a, it's a tricky condition because there is no diagnostic test. PID, it is a clinical syndrome of ascending inflammation and infection. It involve the cervix, endometrium, fallopian tubes and peritoneum. You can get a frank peritonitis from it. Typically, you'll be seeing a recent onset pelvic pain and dyspareunia, but sometimes it can be quite subtle and low-grade, but I can't emphasise enough that earlier treatment correlates with a lower risk of sequelae and complications, and those complications include ectopic pregnancy, tubal factor, infertility, and chronic pelvic pain. And important for our registrars to realise that in 60% of cases, there is no STI identified and that negative swabs do not exclude PID. It's a polymicrobial condition, and it often involves the host vaginal anaerobes that are present is sort of creating this perfect storm of ascending infection. So it's a clinical diagnosis and we really want our registrars to maintain a low threshold for suspecting PID and commencing empirical treatment. So empirical treatment, about two years ago, a stat azithromycin dropped off the empirical treatment. So currently empirical treatment for non-procedural, so of someone within six weeks of a procedure, they get a different antibiotic, but for your non-procedurally related PIDs, they're going to get 500 milligrams of keftriaxone intramuscularly. It's a gluteal injection. If you're lucky enough to be located near enough to a pharmacy, you can just give them the script for the 500 milligram vial and they can come back and you can give it or have the nurse give it. Sometimes though, if you're a long way from a pharmacy, your doctor's bag supply has a two gram vial. So there's just a bit of maths involved, just divide it and so they get a 500 milligram dose. And then it's two weeks of BD metronidazole and BD doxycycline. And that guidance on how to manage PID is really nicely outlined there in the STI management guidelines. Follow-up, so this patient comes back and she's improved at 48 hours. She's slightly less tender and we got her results and she's actually got a macrolide-resistant mycoplasma. And this is something that we are seeing more and more of. Mycoplasma is a big problem and did a recent audit of 12 months worth of PIDs at family planning. And we saw mycoplasma, I think it was in about 9% overall of our PIDs, but it was something like a third almost most of PIDs where we had an STI identified. So it's certainly up there. So a bit on mycoplasma, it's a sexually transmitted bacteria. It's one of the smallest bacteria, and it lacks cell wall. So it's very difficult to culture, which is why we're very reliant on PCR testing for it. It's associated with the syndrome. So urethritis, cervicitis, PID, possibly proctitis. Asymptomatic rectal infection, however, is very common among men who have sex with men. Very difficult to culture and we are having big problems with emerging resistance. It has significant macrolide resistance and a significant driver of that is that if you've had azithromycin in the preceding 12 months, that is a significant risk factor for developing a macrolide resistant mycoplasma. It doesn't really like the throat, so it does pharyngeal infections rare. But we do not want screening of asymptomatic individuals because we don't want to identify a large burden of asymptomatic carriers who might have a low, low load of it. Because then if we treat these people, we're stuck with a large proportion of them. And depending what study you look at, it can be between 50 to 80% resistance. So we don't want to be driving that more by identifying a large asymptomatic cohort. So really, the only people we want to be testing is people with symptoms And a current ongoing sexual contact of an index case, and that is to protect the index case from reinfection. And not everywhere does resistance testing, so there is a particular macrolide resistance assay that is available through some labs. So, important for you to just ask your local lab that you use whether they do a macrolide resistance assay on the MGPCR, and making sure that you're using a lab, if possible, that does that. So in a case of mycoplasma PID all of the international guidance advise moxifloxacin for 14 days for mycoplasma PID. The problem is that it's quite expensive it's not PBS listed for this indication so it's an off-label indication and there is a black box warning for very rare but significant tendinopathy associated with moxifloxacin and we do want to test any current ongoing sexual partners and treat them if they are positive and you must do a test of cure at least two weeks after completing the treatment don't do it too soon because it will still be positive the PCR tests are so good they'll pick up the dead stuff still hanging around. And I would encourage you to read a further Melbourne Sexual Health Centre are the gurus on mycoplasma. And so there's a really good treatment guideline for health professionals on their website. Melbourne Sexual Health Centre have a wonderful suite of resources for health professionals. So I'd be including having a look through those in any teaching session with the registrars on mycoplasma vaginal discharge again the take-home message is vaginal discharge please examine them seeing too many patients who have been told they've got thrush for 10 years by the GP no one's ever looked and then you have a look and there's a vulval cancer there that sounds silly but we really must be having a look at anyone who is symptomatic because women will very readily self-diagnose as thrush and it, it may not be thrush so always having a look always examine Making sure, spending some time with your registrars that they are well and truly aware of the indications for cervical co-testing There's a bit of an overuse of the co-test in the first few years of the cervical screening renewal so there's a really lovely it was updated uh, since the initial release of the cervical screening guidelines about when to do the co-test and what constitutes signs and symptoms for co-testing and there's again from Melbourne Sexual Health a really lovely treatment guideline for vaginal discharge just a bit of revision of AMSL's criteria. It's really helpful. We use those pH vaginal testing kits in clinic, and it's nice to sort of be able to go, okay, there's some homogenous discharge. It's got an elevated pH. It's got that classic BV smell. I'm confident it's BV. So it's just a tool that you can use as well. Just treatment there for BV, and there is, again, Melbourne Sexual Health recurrence is a big problem. Recurrent BV is a problem in 50% of women. So if your registrars are turning up with patients with recurrent BV, that there is a nice little treatment guideline from Melbourne Sexual Health. And just to say, importantly, that there are some over-the-counter intravaginal lactic acid and probiotic products, there is no evidence of benefit for them, just to say. Now, just to finish off, spend a couple of minutes on syphilis, because syphilis is an emerging problem. And we really need to be having syphilis at the front of our mind in any sexual health practice and making sure that our registrars are having syphilis in their minds as well. Because in Australia, we are seeing outbreaks of syphilis. We're seeing a resurgence of congenital syphilis. So we really want to be having a low threshold for testing for it. So any genital ulcer really need to be thinking of syphilis in your differential. Compared to herpes, genital ulcers from syphilis are less painful ulcers, and the lesions are often a bit indurated, and they will have some associated lymphadenopathy in the groin as well. But our rates are rising, and it's not our classic populations anymore. It's among heterosexual women also. And it's often not diagnosed until late. So we're seeing a lot of ophthalmologists picking up syphilis because people are presenting with funny visual changes. At this year's Sexual Health Conference, there was a presentation of a syphilis glomerulonephritis. So it's one of those great mimickers and having a a really low threshold for testing is very important and very sadly we are seeing congenital syphilis rates on the rise in Australia so really really maintaining a low threshold for testing. Now syphilis serology is one of those things that it doesn't matter how long I practice sexual health for anytime I see syphilis serology it does my mind you know I can't keep it in my head but That problem was solved about a month ago when Asham put out this amazing two-pager. It's a lovely algorithmic resource that looks at testing for syphilis, how to interpret results, how to follow up results and what to do. So make sure your registrars have that in their toolkit because it is just the most amazing resource and it really just simplifies what can be quite complicated serology interpretation. It's a really great management algorithm for syphilis. So that's an important one to know about. Just to finish up with this, and again, this is straight from the current Australian STI management guidelines about when we should be making sure our registrars are aware to test for syphilis. So certainly at least annually, as I've said, for men who have sex with men, but can be up to every three months. For HIV positive men, up to four times a year. Routine antenatal testing is a big one. So at the initial antenatal test, when we're doing all those initial antenatal blood syphilis, serology should always be on that. And most centres now are recommending repeat screening at around 24 to 28 weeks as well so that's important any sexual contact of a person with syphilis offering it for any routine checkup offering syphilis serology but certainly if there's any signs or symptoms of syphilis so really low threshold for testing if there's a genital ulcer and you can take a viral swab of the ulcer and request syphilis pcr from a direct swab of an ulcer any men who have sex with men with genital symptoms or rash, funny unexplained rashes can be syphilis as well. So, if persistent or unexplained rashes, again, low threshold for syphilis, pyrexia of unknown origin, persisting lymphadenopathy, unexplained liver dysfunction, always just think in the back of your mind syphilis.
1: Thank you for the sexual history, taking stuff all the way through to syphilis serology. And when I led up in the Northern Territory, I used to give literally one hour lectures. My job was the syphilis guy, and it is incredibly complex, as you say. So a simple two-pager sounds wonderful.
2: Oh, it's the most brilliant resource I've seen in the last year, I reckon.
1: (laughs) So do you check for syphilis with rectal discharge is one question.
2: Yeah, so rectal discharge alone, you'd probably be thinking more of chlamydia, gonorrhea, mycoplasma. So you'd be swabbing for those things. But certainly if there was an ulcer present, but I'd be, someone presenting with rectal discharge has obviously got at risk features that I'd be doing syphilis serology on them. If there was an ulcer, I would do a PCR for syphilis from the actual lesion. But yeah, someone presenting with rectal discharge, they've scored an examination, they've scored a rectal MCNS, they've scored a mycoplasma, gonorrhea, chlamydia, PCR, I would probably be doing syphilis as part of that workup.
1: What is HSVM-CS? Um, seconds, what's your take on herpes serology, which I know often oh, gets yeah. chucked around?
2: So there is very little role for herpes serology, certainly not in a screening situation. So a A herpes simplex virus PCR, you would do on a genital lesion when they're symptomatic. But certainly in an asymptomatic person, it has no role in screening to do serology because it's confusing because they could have positive serology and never have had a clinical presentation because their immune system's seen it, dealt with it, and they've never had a symptom. There are some very individual clinical scenarios where it may be useful where you've got discordant couples you know for example in pregnancy or you know a very symptomatic person or you want to know whether the partner is seronegative to protect them but as a general screening tool it has no place and it just adds confusion.
1: Excellent talk thanks Sally. Fabulous to hear from a clinician who's seeing patients with these presentations every day putting the guidelines the evidence into practice really um, practical and also just that prism Of supervisors taking their registros. What is complex sometimes and challenging areas. So appreciate your time tonight. Thanks all and thanks again so much Sally. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Program.